a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? How goes it on this very hot summer day? Gosh, isn't that the truth? 104 in Billings right now, you guys. Two Oof-da. summers here, and I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Oofta. No. How about you, Josh? Are you cool where you're at? But at least you guys have AC. It's like overcast and cloudy here. We don't need to turn the AC on, I'm sorry to say. Mm. Jealous. It's, it's nice. I will tell you guys, though, <laughs> I'm about to do a long weekend vacation to San Diego, and the weather forecast is low, or no, it's high 60s all weekend. Whoa. <laughs> oh. You know what's bad when California is cooler? It's going to be amazing. Mm. Oh, what fun. So, what are your beverages today? I'm back on a Findlay Brewing Company. This is from my friend Tyler, who was just the coolest and sent us all care packages, which, Josh, I think you have yours in at this point. Yeah, but the beer's not chilled, so I feel like I shouldn't be drinking it yet. Yeah, I I think Mm -hmm. you do it the most honor by waiting. But I am enjoying their Subtropic Brew, and this is an IPA, and I'll, I'll read you the notes here. A single hop IPA featuring Brew One hops is loaded with fresh pineapple and stone fruit flavors. Ooh. And, you know, they say each sip will kick you into vacation mode and whisk you away to your favorite subtropical paradise. And uh, I already had a sip, but I feel like I'm going to chug this one because it is so delicious. The pineapple is exactly what I wanted mixed in with the bitterness of the hops. Like, Mm. uh, oh. It's it's the perfect beer for when it's 104 degrees outside. Let's put it that way. Oh. <laughs> I'm excited to try that one. Me too. I'm going to try it for sure. What about you, Josh? I guess I'm also feeling the pineapple-y mood. Um, I got a pineapple sparkling water, and I put that cucumber rosemary syrup that I made oh. the other day in this to try and like not have as much alcohol flavor, and it's good. I definitely taste more of it. I don't get the cucumber. I don't know how you would make a syrup that actually tastes like cucumber. But it's good. I definitely taste the mm. rosemary more. It's a hard flavor to capture, for sure. It is really hard. Yeah. Did you did you cook it down with the peel on, or did you peel the cucumber first? No, peel was there. Okay. Yeah. I've I've heard that's the key, is make sure the peel is there, because that's where a lot of the flavor comes from. Otherwise, it's just like seeds and water. You know? I think that for the amount of sugar and water I did, I should have done more cucumber or less sugar and water, because I think the flavor does mm-hmm. come through a little bit. But the pineapple, the soft essence of pineapple just completely covers the cucumber. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. For sure. When I used to work at a, uh, a very cool coffee shop here in Billings, we used to make big pitchers of water and it was always the opener's decision on what we were going to infuse the water with for the day. Oh yeah. I love that. And one of my favorites was cucumber and fresh jalapeno. Let that soak in the Ooh. water for a while. 
That's a bold move. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. I don't even like jalapenos, and I would try that. Big fan. What are you drinking, Emily? You know, so I had family up for the 4th of July, and they left their supplies here to make Moscow mules. So I made a Moscow mule, and I used Huckleberry Mm. vodka, and it is delightful. Delightful. Mm -hmm. That Huckleberry stuff is like, when you live in Montana or Wyoming long enough, it's like you kind of forget that it exists. But apparently it's a big thing for tourists, right? Like it's the thing that's sold at a lot of gift shops. Oh, all over Cody in gift shops and other stores, in the grocery stores even, huckleberry jams and honeys and all sorts of things. Yeah. It is very popular. I usually forget it's an option, but that sounds delightful. Good. Oh, well, we have our beverages. We're settled in and... You know, I had a topic in mind and y'all were getting prepared for it. And then I'm deciding to flip it on its head and do a different topic because I have a little backstory. So oh, I love a story. on July okay. on July 5th, um, I had a gentleman who was a member of my church who suddenly passed away. Oh, wow. It was very sad. And we had the funeral. Actually, the day of recording is today, the 17th. So it was on July 16th was the funeral. And the sanctuary was packed. I mean, there were so many people. And we did the service. People sang. People spoke. We did the graveside. We came back for lunch. And at the end of the day, I was just kind of sitting there and thinking about the purpose and even the necessity for grief and for grieving. Whoa. And today, having to preach... I looked back where he normally sits with his wife and he wasn't there. And it just got me thinking like how weird like church is going to be now, even like without this one individual. And he was a member of my trustees committee, too. So we had a meeting today and we looked over and the chair that he always would sit in was empty, of course. And it just got me thinking about, yes, grief sucks, but it's also, in my opinion, immensely important. And so I thought it would be great for us to talk about grief. And I really don't like have a set, I guess, agenda or like really any huge thoughts about it. But I just think it is one of those things that we should talk about in the church and in our faith journeys because we all experience it. And I want to know, I guess I want to know maybe first off, what has grief done for you? Not done to you, but done for you. Mm. Starting out with a banger question, I see. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm glad we mm. all have alcohol for this one. Mm. <laughs> I don't. I don't have alcohol for this one. Oh, that's right. You don't. I well, left it Josh, out. Maybe I might, should, though. You might need it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's a, I like that question because I think that it acknowledges like the the function of grief, like grief can have like a causality in our lives. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting idea. But to be honest, I can't think of an example for myself. Like I can think of periods of my life that I grieved in. This is probably low hanging fruit, but I feel like anytime that I have been connected to someone who's passed away somehow, I think that for me, it's certainly been a reminder of the uncertainty and the shortness of life. Mm-hmm. But even then, I wouldn't say that it's been like, like altered my life in any like significant, huge way or anything. Like I'm not like, 
oh yeah, you only live once. Like now I'm just going to turn my life into this big bucket list. And like, that's what my life is about now. Like, I don't think I've ever had like a major, like turning point of grief, I guess, where I was like different before than I am after. And I think one thing too, that I was kind of reflecting on after the funeral was the different forms of grief and also the different types of loss. And I think people may think you have to experience death in order to experience grief. And Mm. there's so many different types of loss that there's going to be grief with any of those. And it was a nice reminder for me that, yes, like the church and the family and friends, they all were grieving the death of someone. But some people were also grieving like the loss of a friendship because that person is no longer there. And, you know, grieving the change of pace and routine because now, you know, I'm imagining his wife was so used to having a routine with him and now things are completely different. And, you know, Mm. this, this loss of time almost too. And so I think they don't always have to be big moments either. That's the other thing too, that I kind of like remind people is grief Mm. can be small and that's okay too. Yeah, like I, I think that there's been certain relationships or even workplaces that I've grieved about, even though mm-hmm. like I, I think a workplace can be a good example because like even though I know I don't want to be there anymore, like it was certainly a type of loss, like getting to the point where like I knew I didn't want to be there anymore because at one point I did want to be there and now I know I don't want to be there. And like that's a unique type of loss. Like I feel like that's that's a very easy tie into like the grief we experience when we leave a church or... um. Mm like step away from a community of some sorts. Like there's like this strange, like cognitive transition that we can't quite pinpoint where like we wanted to be there and now we don't. And like, that's really weird to explain to people who aren't feeling the same thing. Yeah. But I like your point. Like it doesn't always have to be big either. Like I, I think that there's been lots of like little disappointing grief points (laughs) for me. Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm maybe a little grieved when a coffee shop is closed. And I wanted to go to that coffee shop. Sure. <laughs> like that sounds like so flippant to say to people who like experience like traumatic loss. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to I'm not going to like go to that guy's wife and be like, yeah, I'm just really grieving right now. Like that's so insensitive. <laughs> so like in some ways I feel weird using the word grief to describe like small losses. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I've just been filling my notebook with notes because you guys are mm. my brain is going like so many different directions. Mm. I think Emily, to answer your original question, which is what has grief done for me? Mm -hmm. There have been a few practical things that I feel like grief has done for me. And then some, I say practical, maybe as opposed to like what feels more like spiritual or metaphysical or something like that. But like the practicality of it is that I have learned through my family history of like addiction and alcoholism being in my bloodline, I have learned a healthy respect for food and alcohol through grief because Mm. I have recognized the very intense desire to go like buy a 12 pack and finish it in a night. Mm -hmm. And I am both, I don't know, that's that's what I mean. It's like it, there's a healthy respect to it because I I feel like I now have a a sense of motivating fear 
of like, I know what I could treat alcohol as if I let myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm also very proud of the fact that I've confided in the people that are like physically closest to me in my life, like my wife and a couple of my really good friends here in Billings of like, I've confided with them to say, sometimes I'm not going to accept an invite to go like out to a brewery. And this is probably why. So don't like, don't push it. If you know, it's like, what, come on, man, we're all going to go enjoy a drink. And if, if I in a night need to like set a boundary and say like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to use alcohol tonight. Like mm-hmm. I need you to be okay with that the first time I say that. And maybe we could pick a different activity. Same way for food. I think I've been changing my relationship to food a lot lately, but, uh, cause I've gone through phases of like food is fuel, you know, very motivated, like, I don't know, Navy seal type of like, I don't care what it tastes like. I just want the nutrition food is fuel. It's whatever. And then I've had phases of like food is just an inconvenience and I'd rather not have to think about it, which I think is a bad relationship mm-hmm. to food just because I like I have always wished that I could love cooking as much as someone like Chad loves cooking. Oh, yeah. And I know I could probably learn that, but I haven't taken the time to do that yet. And lately, especially through a period of like burnout and fatigue is like I've been learning that I use food in kind of like a self-medicating kind of way and like overindulging or mindlessly indulging just to fill some type of boredom or satisfaction or something like that. So, but I feel like grief is what actually revealed to me what those relationships were like Mm. in regards to alcohol and food. Cause grief was like moments of intense grief for me have been like in, you know, like the darkest period of my life so far was probably a couple Christmases ago after our first miscarriage. Mm. Mm And that was when I I really learned about myself and alcohol just being like, wow, it is, I, I have never even had the thought that I could give myself over to something like that or like potentially be alcoholic to some degree. And it, it just felt like one of those intrusive thoughts that comes in at the worst of grief, but then being able to like process that in real time with people who love me and want to support me is like, learning that has given me that attitude toward alcohol that I didn't think, I don't think I had before then, Hmm. you know? Yeah. The other thing that grief has done for me, which feels a lot more like it's very hard to like put into as many practical words is I just feel like grief has made my capacity to love greater. Uh, See, that's what I was going to say. Do you want to talk about it then? Like how, like how would you begin to put words to that? Because I, I don't think I have many other words to say other than I just feel like I love so much more intensely. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be really curious to hear how both of you like measure and or notice that in a tangible way. Yeah. I think for me, experiencing loss, different types of loss has shown me that when I lose something, notice I didn't say if. I said when, <laughs> um, when I lose something, because I, I know it's inevitable, I realize that I am given an opportunity to see not only the impact that that has had on me, whether it be the loss of a person or a relationship or a situation or even a loss of an item, um, a significant item, maybe. I realize that. 
I see how much of an impact that it had on my life and what I can make from that is sharing and showing more love to those who are my neighbor, to those who are around me. And I think grief for me has shown me that I experience many things in the midst of loss. And those experiences make me a better me. And when I feel like I have lost something or am losing, like even actively losing something, I almost have this push within me to say, this is showing me how I can love and care for others. Because the idea of YOLO, you only live once. Oh, okay, yes. Um, but really, like, if we're going to live by that phrase, I don't think it should be do all these crazy things on your bucket list. I think it should be if you only live once, you should truly love people as much as humanly possible and then some. Yeah. <laughs> because we only have this time. And if we if we believe that, then yeah, you really need to show the world and show people love and compassion and mercy and really strive for people to thrive in the world. And that, I think that's what grief has shown me is we can thrive even when we are in our lowest of lows. And that's by showing love to others. Right. Yeah. There is something about like we didn't ask to be shown how frail everything really is mm -hmm. or how temporal things really are. But once you're taught that a good once or twice, I feel like it has infused a degree of like richness to mm. even to the degree of intentionality I show up to things with of like, like there's a morbid version of like, this might be the last time I get the opportunity to say, I love you to my wife, which is always the truth. And I think th that thought is really easy to spiral into just mm -hmm. anxiety and like the worst of the worst case scenario thinking. But in a, in another real way, it's like, uh, I even feel like that inspires me to like, I want to be the best <laughs> game master for my D and D group. I want to be because every session hmm. in a way, like I kind of rem remind myself of like, this could be our last and I want it to be a great one, you know? Um, even with the, just the practical, I'm not implying that any player might die at some point. And then we never get to finish the game, but it's like, I mean, there's a practicality in our game right now where one of the, uh, one of the people in our game is about to have a baby in a couple months. And it's like, okay, do we want to try to finish the game in two months or plan ahead to how it might change because she's not going to be here to play anymore? I don't know. They're like just that idea of this could be the last time I, I do think infuses a degree of richness to everything once you yeah, once that kind of like makes its home in your heart and mind in a way. Mm -hmm. Just to say, I'm going to try to be fully present because really all there is here is the present. You're more worried about Stephen's presence than God's presence. I don't know. That just popped into my head. What do I'm you mean? That's true. Well, <laughs> you're what like, does that even mean? Well, you're worried. You're, you're, um, 
I'm sorry. That sounded really like um. That sounded really <laughs> critical, and I didn't mean for it to sound critical. <laughs> no, I mean like you're uh, you're you're concerned with you having presence. Like I I'm like struck by the way mm. that you phrase that being so similar to like. Like we just we want to be intentional with inviting God's presence here, and like we recognize that God is here with us. But like, oh, you're doing that in a very similar way to like, I want to make sure I'm here. Yeah, like yeah. I'm fully here, and I I love that. I think that's beautiful. Am I really loving the people in front of me the best I can if I'm worried about the next event I'm headed to or mm-hmm. next week's mm-hmm. iteration of the same event? Is like, yeah, if I ruminate too much on the future or the past, then I don't. I'm not as receptive or attentive to what's happening right here in front of me. And I think that's love. I think just like showing up and being mm-hmm. present. Like I'm struck with the image of like uh, Mary sitting at Jesus's feet while Martha tries to prepare the meal and Martha gets all butthurt about it of like, I, like I wonder how much Mary and Martha both in a comparative way had given themselves over to like grief in the past and how that informed maybe Mary's desire to just like, well, Jesus is here. I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to listen, sit at his feet. Mm -hmm. And Martha's worried about the next meal, which I think is an appropriate and practical thing to also be worried about. But also I think that that story serves as a contrast of like the anxiety toward the future doesn't allow you to be perfectly present where you are now. And I think Jesus points that out when he says like, yeah, Mary's doing the right thing because I'm not going to be here forever. Yeah. And like, yes, Martha, thank you for the meal. But also the meal could have been a lot simpler and you both could have enjoyed the time sitting at my feet and spending time in community with me, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I was thinking about Lazarus earlier. And I think that the story of Jesus and Lazarus is often talked about as a great example of Jesus's humanity. And that like, for some reason, Jesus was grieving, even though Jesus seems to know that he was going to bring Lazarus back. So I feel like I've heard a lot of people talk about like, this is what it means to like grieve with those who grieve and be in solidarity with people. And yeah, like even if you are, and also like he probably wasn't acting like he was probably truly grieving, mm-hmm. even though he knew that something was going to change. So, okay. So this might be a little bit of a pivot. I think this is interesting. I was, I was thinking about you guys as you were talking, cause I think both of you have experienced some bigger losses and like grief moments than I have in some ways. And I was I was thinking about like I think it's important that grief is an emotion. Like grief is not the event. Mm-hmm. Like it's not the loss itself. And sometimes it's not even loss, but like grief is something that we feel and I feel like a lot of people love to talk about in a very positive way that like we all process grief differently. We all experience it differently. And I think that's primarily because it is an emotion. And so, like, in thinking about the stages of grief, which, you know, in the, in the psych world are sometimes criticized, like, sometimes people expand on the five stages by, like, going up to seven, but usually they're, um, oh, what are they? A denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Like, there's, right. there's at least somewhat of a, like, linear path that well, people seem to progress on. Careful with linear, because even the, the inventor of that rubric didn't say... This happens one after another. It's all very blurry and messy. And sometimes you skip stages and sometimes you regress stages and all that. So, right. Which is part of the criticism. Right. But like, um, but anyway, I was like thinking about all of that and 
I was kind of thinking back on the episode we did about God and the feel the what do we what do we call question it? It was about God and emotions. Yeah. Yeah, God and the question of feeling. And like talking about like the theological theological implications of Jesus or of God feeling emotions. And then like mm-hmm. there's the story of Jesus and Lazarus where like Jesus clearly felt emotions. And like I think a lot of people use that story to highlight Jesus's humanity. But like if you already hold that God can feel emotions, arguably, or like whether you think that whether you're like getting that from the text or you're just like, you know, theologizing, then like Jesus doesn't have to be human to feel that grief. Mm. And then that got me thinking about, um, I think a lot of people talk about sin as it grieves God, but like, what would that mean? Like, what, what does that mean for God to grieve? Whoa. Ooh. What do you guys think? I don't know. That thought just kind of came to me. I've never really like critically thought about that. I've never like Mm. pushed back against that when people say it. So, off the top of my head, because I, I was additionally thinking when you guys were talking about the different types of loss, I think the one that I'd identify with the most, if we're going to form like a typology of loss, is the loss of the ideal future that you now know won't come true. Mm. And for me, like it's a very weird identity to sit in the fact that I, like, I believe I can truly claim that I am a father even though mm-hmm. I don't have any children to show for it through two miscarriages. And that like that ideal future that was there when Dixie and I were dating and when we were engaged and when we were newly married, thinking about having a family and all those types of things is like, I've lost that ideal future. And now like that ideal future became a hell to me, like a present day hell of like grieving the loss of that life but also the loss of like what i thought my family life would look like and i wonder if grieving god by our sin is a way like in process theology right like god doesn't maybe even know the future let alone have enough influence to actually just make it exactly what he wants like the future is up to us to co-create with the Christ and with the creator. And I think to, I think maybe to grieve God through sin is to essentially rob God of the ideal future. He was trying to create with us. Mm. And, I like and that. maybe we've set that back a few stages. Like it could have been different, but they chose something that was selfish or something that was self-interested to the degree of harming another person. And that's not the future I wanted. And now that that future won't come true, God is grieving that loss of that potential future. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, Don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. 
For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Heinlein Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, No Normal People. She was actually late for a meeting. I had showed up at like just the wrong time. And she was late for a meeting. I was having a full meltdown um, because nothing made sense anymore. I didn't know. People were expecting me to choose what my career was going to look like because college was next year. And I was like, I'm not old enough for this. I don't know myself. I don't know anything. And so she locked me in her office. (laughs) Well, not locked me, but she shut me in her office, you know, drew the blinds and um, not with her. She just like said, hey, I have this exercise for you. I have this blank whiteboard. Just start writing things that you value, Mm -hmm. things that are important to you and just go from there. And so she had taught me a couple of like processing tools. Um, So this one was just like a basic mind map. And it was the most amazing experience for me and completely changed my trajectory of my life. Josh, Emily, you know how some Christians have an opinion that communion can only be wine and unleavened bread? It's bullcrap. It is. And let me tell you what I prefer. On a nice Sunday quiet morning, I will sip a delightful hot cup of Highline coffee with my buttered toast. And I think that is communion in and of itself. Amen, Amen, brother. Amen. You are preaching. What's the better name for our metaphorical coffee shop that we're putting into our podcast church? Is it Holy Grounds or is it Hebrews or is it the Sproly Spirit? (laughs) Well, whichever we choose, just as God pours his Holy Spirit into us, so we pour ourselves a nice mug of coffee. If you want to join us in doing this as well, be sure to order coffee now. We sell it. You can order it at highline.network forward slash shop. Here's a question then to kind of piggyback off of that in talking about, you know, Kula Ross's five stages. Would you say then, and I I, I might get shot for this, I don't know. Um, would you say then that Jesus is essentially the means by which God was bargaining? Jesus was by, oh, oh, um, hmm. like ransom theory type stuff? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. So in the grief God was experiencing of not seeing Israel fulfill its potential that God had in mind for Israel, Jesus became God's bargaining move. That's a, that's a tricky question because I feel like everyone is going to jump on that and say, oh, are you saying Satan had more power than God in that moment that God had to bargain See, that's why I said I was going to get shot for asking that question. But it just, it makes you wonder, like, how would God experience then those stages? Like, yeah, I think that I I don't really like the parallel between the bargaining and the like penal substitution or like even Christus Victor combo. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a correlation, but I think that maybe you could say it in the sense of like, I think that the term bargaining in the stages of grief is usually 
like more of the internal struggle of bargaining. Like, surely there's a better way. Like, like, how can I go on kind of thing? And that's and I think that's what I think that's what Jesus was. I think that was what the point of Jesus was, in my opinion, was I'm I'm going to show you a better way through Jesus. Because, mm. mm. you know, if we if we read God speaking through prophets and time and time again, the prophets were ignored and we hear how pissed off God was. And so maybe God was like, OK, yep, we're going to we're going to do things a little differently. Here's here. Try this instead. And maybe that was I don't know. But not in the sense of like incarnating Jesus was an afterthought, right? Because I, I feel like there's pretty no. solid theology in that, like, right? Is it Paul that says, like, since the foundations of the earth, this was always the mm-hmm. plan, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you get into territory of, like, this wasn't just a Hail Mary on, pun intended, I guess. <laughs> uh, this wasn't just a Hail Mary on God's part. It was. It was always part of the plan, which then is, like, there's also... I feel like what we're coming to is the there's like a time component to grief is like a lot of people expect grief to have like an end date of like, you know, I experienced a church member passing away suddenly or um, or a friend dying or a miscarriage or something like that. And there's not really an expiration date on the grief that is then triggered. Mm-hmm. I think that's a bad expectation to have of like, well, you should be over this by now. Well, I, that's why I really like Emily's question because I think it takes seriously how and does God grieve? Because if, yeah, like if we're going to ask the question about what does it look like for God to bargain, then it also leads us to ask, like, what does it mean for, what would it mean for God to be in denial? Like, a lot of people like to talk about God's anger and God's wrath, but like, what does God denying look like? Or what does, mm. uh, what does God being depressed look like? Like, if that's a stage of grief. Yeah. And we see a depiction of Jesus grieving. What what was going on? Especially in the garden. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting. Yeah, the Garden of Gethsemane's prayers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I forgot about that. I yeah. feel like I feel like we have a lot of those ideas of grief being embedded into Jesus all at once. Of like, if there's another way, please let this cup pass. This is freaking me out. I'm sweating blood. I'm so stressed out. I would actually say that is a good depiction of a grief process like there's like denial yeah. there's there's bargaining there's depression in that whole scene and acceptance arguably Ugh. and they didn't even know like they didn't even know about science i'm just kidding <laughs> they <laughs> like, didn't yeah, even the know about elizabeth kubler ross <laughs> dang it that's true though yeah i think that's a really good I, especially right if you if you hold to the idea that jesus was divine is that like that is what it looks like for god to grieve Oofta. But then, like, why why are some people very focused on the idea that our sin grieves God? Like, if grief is more than sadness and disappointment, yeah. Like, why would we use that phrasing when we're not? When I haven't seen someone give like a really thorough, like, idea of what it would mean for a divine creator of the universe to experience grief, hmm. unless that's like the entirety of the Hebrew Bible is showing the process of God grieving. Oh, okay. Say more. Well, so I, I want to one up Emily's idea and say, maybe Jesus incarnating was God finally accepting the grief process. And like, that was ex- his acceptance Ooh. of it's not going to happen how I originally thought. 
you know, like I thought we were going to have a beautiful garden where we were able to coexist. And I asked them to not partake of this because they were not ready and they chose to do it anyway. And then the, the process of God's relationship to his people, right? Especially when it funnels down to very specific individuals in the story of like, right now, all I have is Abraham or Moses, you know? And then it becomes more people through like a priesthood and through like a nation, right? As we, as the Israelites arrive in the promised land, but the process of God wrestling with their desire for a king and saying like, no, you never needed a king. Like, what are you trying to, why are you trying to usurp me by just trying to look like every other kingdom around you? But letting them do that and then watching them kind of devolve into their civil wars, right? That we see through Chronicles and Kings. And then the prophets here, I feel like the prophets actually represent a lot of God's bargaining with his people through the grief process. And I feel like the prophets are there to say, like, we missed out on something, you guys. Like, what are we actually doing here? So, like, maybe the overarching story, I mean, like, you could even embed the anger phase of God's grief in what the Israelites considered maybe a a holy genocide of the Canaanites. Whether historically that happened or not, that's a whole nother question and probably episode, but like that might represent God's anger, at least in like purging um purging peoples that are very like anti and possibly descendant of like some weird Genesis Genesis six weirdness. But maybe the Old Testament, maybe the Hebrew Bible is representative of the grief process and Jesus Christ incarnating in a baby in Nazareth is God's acceptance of this didn't go how the original vision of Eden was supposed to go, but I can work with this. Hmm. I'm pivoting slightly only because I was thinking of after the funeral that I had for our church member, we did the graveside. Then we all came back to the church for a lunch and there was a lot of food, a lot of people. People were able to share memories and it was wonderful. His granddaughter sang a song and she did a beautiful job. Um, But it got me thinking about churches participating in moments of grief or the grieving process. And there are some churches that do a great job and there are some churches that I feel hinder or hurt the grieving process. And I wonder what can churches do maybe to be more, I don't know if helpful, that's the first word that came to mind, but how can churches assist or be a part of the grieving process in a better way? I think bare minimum is uh, not victim blaming and Mm. not, um, I was going to say not provide a solution, but sometimes you do need a solution. Like sometimes you do need like physical, tangible help. But I feel like there's something else I'm trying to get at there. I mean, it's, it's so cliche. I feel like to me at this point, but like, I think too many Christians just get preachy instead of trying to be there for someone in some way, Mm -hmm. like whether it's cooking for them or being a listening ear or through labor or I feel like it's a tough question to answer for me, Emily, because I I feel very disconnected from like church at large right now. 
Would mm-hmm. you allow yeah. me to at least exchange the word church for just community? Like what is a community's role in an individual's grieving process? Sure. Because I feel like that opens up a lot of possibilities for me. I feel like a tradition that Christians in America in today's day and age may have lost from our Jewish heritage is the concept of like sitting Shiva, Mm. just joining someone in their outward expression of what that grief looks like, right? Literally just being able to like sit with someone in a living room and be moved to tears to just cry with someone and not even try to offer comfort or a Bible verse or a prayer or just be like, I see how much this hurts and it hurts you so much that it hurts me. I think is huge. That's Um, why I really liked your point about presence earlier, because I think that like just literally being with someone can just do wonders for someone's health. Yeah. Right. I think like some of the, some of the practicalities as well is like, if you can allow someone who is in deep mourning to just not think about where their next meal is going to come from or how they're going to prepare it themselves. Like it sounds maybe cliche, but like meal train a person's life for three to four weeks. Like take that off their plate metaphorically. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think is huge and has been huge for Dixie and I of just knowing like, no, that's, that's provided for. We don't have to worry about that right now, you know? And whatever our grief looks like individually is like just knowing that we have backup is really the feeling of like uh, a community just being willing to enter that space is so huge. Like there has to be a reason that Jesus in Matthew 5 says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I think that happens through enjoying the benefits of a community who knows that sometimes the right thing to do is just show up and shut up. Yeah. See also 40 chapters of Job. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. I think people forget that those tangible things, you know, having to worry about where next meal is coming from and having affairs in order and whatnot. I, I think people sometimes forget that those weigh heavy on people who are already being heavily weighed down with grief. And it goes back to the whole we've had, you know, having the conversation of what can I do to help you? And when you tell someone how you would like the assistance and they would rather not do that, it's almost the same with the grieving process. You know, I'm here for you. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you. And for someone to say, would you know, it'd be nice to have some meals like provided. We should never put people in that situation where they're already experiencing many emotions and they're dealing with a situation that they weren't anticipating. And so I think when people are going to offer support and care, it's it's almost one of those things where it's like, don't ask, like just just do. And that's what I loved about seeing my congregation pulled together. Yes, he was a member of this church, but I've seen them do the same exact thing for people who have come in just asking to have a funeral in the church. We have a woman who coordinates the lunches or like receptions for funerals. And she called me up and, you know, she said, hey, I hear you. We have a funeral. They're not members of our church, but we would like to still do a lunch. You know, what are their dietary restrictions? Like, what are things that 
we should be prepared for. And I love that gumption of just saying these people need food. Mm. It doesn't matter if we know them or not. They are grieving. They are at a loss. Here's one less thing that they need to worry about. And I wonder if communities, churches, however you want to label it, I wonder if there are ways that we could, I don't want to use the word educate, but I wonder if there are ways that we could inform or engage people in the understanding of if you think it's not helpful, like take a step back and actually think for a moment if you were to experience a loss. Do you really want to take the time to worry about all these other things on top of what you're already worrying about? Because I think people sometimes get scared and they don't know what to say. They don't know how to be there. And so they jump to the platitudes, basically. And that can hinder the healing and grieving process, in my opinion. I think one of the best things that we can do that is really easy is to listen to people's stories and ask about stories sometimes like that sounds so cheesy but like do you ever just have like a random memory come to you like from a time long past and you're like why am i remembering this right now and i i think i've uh i think i've made a more mindful practice the re- like the last couple years to just like speak it out loud and be like, hey, this is wild. But like, I just had this wild memory come to me about this thing that we're doing. And I just have Mm. to share it or something. I'm like, I think that's been cathartic for myself. And I like, I imagine that it is, it's got to be so healing for people who experience really powerful loss and grief to just have someone to like, even talk about the good times. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's, it's much more common among elderly people. Uh, I used to work in, in an old folks home and the amount of <laughs> the amount of people that would just, you know, just launch into a story without warning. Oh yeah. <laughs> that I'm all of a sudden trapped in. But, and I like, I'm, sometimes I'd like appreciate the story and other times I wouldn't, but like, obviously they wanted to tell it. And I think listening is very, very important in those times. I love that. And I love it. Cause it, creates a space where everyone can share, you know, memories and stories. But I think it also helps take the focus off of the wearing and weary and, you know, the heavy weight that everyone is experiencing. It lightens the atmosphere. Yeah. I think what's hard about our culture and like making space to listen is that in our white Western individualistic culture especially in church like as community oriented as we try to be we're often still so isolated like it's unfortunately easy to go to a funeral and then not have contact with that family for another week or another month or Mm. whatever versus like a lot of other cultures are still very intertwined and just like in each other's lives all the time and like you can't escape (laughs) Which like sometimes can be a hindrance for sure, but then like, I like in times of trial and grief, like that's when community is strong, and I think that if we find ourselves in individualistic phases of our life, like to one reason or another, I think we have to go the extra mile to actually like call someone up or 
like intentionally show up in some way when that's not like our norm, so to speak. And I think that's challenging on both ends. Like it's not, it's not always easy. I forget what I was processing recently. It may have been the Rob Elementary school shooting, but I remember journaling a while ago, basically the phrase of like, oh, I actually think I understand why in the Bible you see people like like sackcloth and ashes in the morning process. If like you read that in the Bible of people like tearing their clothes and wailing, but also putting sackcloth on and like heaping ashes on their head. And like, I think there's something so freeing about choosing an outward symbol of like what you're feeling on the inside to let other people know what is going on. You know, if you're, if you're grieving through anger at what happens in a shooting or just the uncomfortability of like, how can the world be like this? Like putting on sackcloth actually probably represents a good way of saying like, I'm going to choose the most itchy to put on my body to show you what I feel Mm -hmm. like on the inside. And the ashes, especially like keeping the ashes on the head to me, it was like right now in my grief, I feel like it would be easier if I was just buried under the earth right now. And I think that's what the ashes on the head represents of like, it is hard to be here and it might be easier just to like sit under ashes. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I feel like we don't have a lot of the same equivalent expressions of grief. I feel like grief is very, uh, it's expected to be private because it makes people on Instagram uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, can you just keep that to yourself, please? Like the rest of us are trying to enjoy our Saturday. Yeah, we're having a good day. Mm-hmm. But that's what I like to, that's, you know, just reflecting on like that biblical culture of sackcloth and ashes. I was like, wow, what a, that's such a tangible way of saying, man, I'm going through some stuff. And shouldn't that inspire someone who sees that to, you know, sit Shiva or just ask, like, hey, man, can I help? What's going on? I don't think we're going to have time to dive into these, but I'm like thinking now about collective grief, like on the mass scale, like uh, like whether it's an event or a period of history, like I, f- I forget what they were called, but like that lost generation in World War II, like all those men who didn't make it home. Like that was certainly a collective grief. Yeah. Um, mm. Or yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking about, and I'm not sure what to call this, but like almost an unwarranted grief. Uh, like when like, so, like person A is grieving for person B, but like person B is having the time of their life and there's no reason to grieve. Whoa. I would I would almost go as far as to say it's a type of projected grief. Like, um, for instance, <laughs> and this might just be off the top of my head because uh, this is the show, but um, I'm like thinking about people who leave the church or um, people who are engaging in activity that someone else views as sin and person A grieving that person and being like, man, I just wish they, they knew that there was something better. And they're like experiencing this real grief over that person and that person is not in grief. And I I think that's really interesting. Mm. Like, I think that's a very unique type of like, it's one thing to like feel empathetic, but it's, I think it's another thing to 
proje like project the loss. Like certainly that person is feeling maybe loss in a relationship to them. But I don't know. I, I that just kind of came to mind over the last couple minutes, and I'm not sure I've really seen that, but. I've I've definitely heard people talk about that. Sure. Like it's the degree of loss, maybe. Yeah. I'm trying to think of another example, but I didn't I, even think about that. Yeah, isn't that kind of interesting? I, I just imagine that like in projection, certainly people project their own grief onto a different situation. Like they're not actually grieving about that situation. Like they're dealing with something else that they haven't allowed themselves to feel yet. Oh, that mm, that's so like just thinking of communities or I'm I'm going to use churches because I'm a pastor and that's like the first <laughs> thing I think of um, just thinking of members who decide to leave and not for any like serious reason or like no extreme harm was done but they they just are deciding to leave the congregation maybe they're moving or they're joining a different church for whatever reason but nothing that was like harm induced but it does make me think of in situations where people have left and members of the church are grieving the loss of that person at almost like they have died or are dying and the person themselves are like, hey, I'm fine. Like, all is good, <laughs> you know, but it, yeah. it is. It's almost like everyone else is processing something that's happening. And now it's almost like that was the final straw or they just weren't expecting it. And so it just comes out a great shock to them. But I, now that you mentioned that, that is a very interesting way to put it because it is, it's they're projecting a grief that may not be to the same degree or even existent for the individual that they are grieving. Yeah. That's interesting. I think it's a C.S. Lewis ism that talks about when one person exits a community be it death or be it choice how that like completely changes the dynamic of the group that's left behind and uh, so i haven't personally read this from c.s lewis but i've heard it talked about enough i feel like in sermons probably um but the idea of like even in in his inklings group of like one of us would be away for a year and even just meeting at the pub with the rest of us, like it didn't quite feel the same. Like a new thing was happening. Sure. But we were also trying to silently navigate the grief of like, man, I wish that <laughs> I wish that Josh was here. Right. Like if Emily and I ever made an episode alone without Josh, it would be like, Oh, this is different. Mm -hmm. Like the lack of one person is completely changing the dynamic of what's happening here together. You know? Yeah. And I feel like that can happen in what you guys are describing of, right, the person who exits is like, hey, I actually feel like I'm living a better life now that I'm not under this kind of like religiosity structure of that church, if I'm honest. But that church is still experiencing the loss of someone. And they're also trying to like refind their balance as a group that now like you've taken weight off of one wing by someone else leaving and it's like oh we have to figure out how to fly straight again mm -hmm. and like looking back i can certainly i guess anecdotally think back to moments where people have like you know they stopped coming to my youth group <laughs> it was like oh they they were something to this community that was a lot bigger than just like them it felt like 
you know, the whole atmosphere of the room is different. Mm-hmm. Are there any last thoughts or closing thoughts that either of you would want to share? I have definitely taken a long time to reframe this in my head. Um, I think about it differently, but I still find comfort in the idea that God knows my grief and Mm. God might be the only being that actually knows what I'm feeling without me being able to put it into words. I find comfort in that still. Mm. (laughs) Despite... Despite like a bunch of other beliefs changing and like not conceptualizing death in the afterlife the same way that I used to. Mm-hmm. And therefore, like my, I think my thoughts about grief have changed in some ways because of like my beliefs about death changing. Yeah. I, I, I still find comfort in that platitude of God knows what you're going through. Like, mm. damn right he does more than anybody else. So if you say that to me, I will not be offended. <laughs> like it might be the one platitude that I'm like, that is acceptable. That's actually helpful. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Good, You're absolutely good to right. Know. <laughs> I will I'll put that in my bank so I remember. I think mine What about you, Steven? Yeah, my final thought would be I feel like grief was a fantastic teacher in the way of what the the Buddhists say, like attachment is suffering. And that the more attached to things you are, when you lose them, you experience suffering. Mm. It feels very plain and simple teaching, but like that is something you can hear out loud a thousand times from teachers and never really like in your bones feel the truth of it until you've actually lost the attachment. So for me, like the, the attachment to the ideal future of having a family the way I thought I was going to after a miscarriage was like, oh no, (laughs) The grief I'm experiencing is the suffering that comes from being attached to that thing. But I think being inspired as I am by the person of Jesus of Nazareth and the cosmic Christ, I think rather than take the Buddhist path of therefore seek to eliminate all attachments in order to find enlightenment, I really do think the call of Jesus is to say, no man attach even more because even in the deepest grief is like it really is a paradoxical bittersweet of like the deepest grief of a loss of a loved one also reminds you how special they were Mm. and like i see that in jesus i think it's in the gospel of john where he's he's literally hanging from the cross about to die and his attachment to his mother inspires him to say woman turn and like the only disciple that's at the cross this is your mother now care for her as if she was your own mother like jesus has an attachment wants to make sure mary is taken care of and does so by invoking even another attachment between one of his best friend disciples to his mother and saying like you now are linked together for eternity because i want this relationship to exist and i want this attachment to be formed because now, in my humanly way of knowing I am dying, I know my mother is taken care of, but also how much richness could this give to the people who follow my words afterward by John having such a relationship with Mary? So hmm. 
I agree with the Buddhists that attachment is suffering, but I disagree that detachment is the way to enlightenment. I think true intertwined relationship is actually like, yes, it is suffering, but I think that's where you find the deepest suffering is actually where you find the deepest love as well. Oh, that's a good tweet. That's, that's a hot take. That's good. I think that's just Christ. I think that's the whole Christian thing. Mm. I like it. I like it a lot. What about you, Emily? How you doing? I'm doing good. You know, Josh, when you were talking about having random memories pop up, I was just thinking how this would be 10 years since my friend Luke had passed away. Wow. And it got me thinking of like all these crazy memories um, and stories that I have of him. And my final thought is that, yes, grief is an emotion. And much like any other emotion, they come and go and they're strong or they're subtle or they pop up randomly. And I think grief is the same. And grief can also be, oddly enough, feelings of joy and feelings of sorrow mixed together. Because while I am saddened in thinking of, oh, my goodness, 10 years, that that's so crazy. I'm also feeling joy and happiness in in all the memories that are coming up and the joy of being able to share those with people and to remember him is just really incredible. And so I'm going to say thank you to grief. <laughs> thank you, grief, for all that you do, even if we don't recognize it right away. You're important. You're important in healing and in creating bonds and strengthening hearts and you're important so thank you Wait, was that the end? That was your word? I like that as the end. I think that's the end. It can it can be the end, yes. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do marketable that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Buzzwords, and, buzz yeah, names. Social following. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.